When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about the Trump administration's new immigration policy of separating children from their parents if they are seeking asylum at the border. And what happens to children in immigration detention without their parents? Ahilan Arulanatham of the ACLU will explain. Also, how do the Democrats' chances of retaking the House look at this point after many of the big primaries are resolved? We'll ask Harold Meyerson. But first, maybe you heard the news. Donald Trump went to Singapore to meet King Jong-un of North Korea unprecedented in the history of both countries. 2,500 journalists from around the world showed up to report on whatever news emerged. For comment, we turn to Bruce Cummings. He's written many books, including The Korean War, A History, and North Korea, Another Country. He writes for The Guardian, The London Review of Books, and The Nation, and he teaches at the University of Chicago. Bruce Cummings, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, we know what Donald Trump wants out of the Korean talks. He wants the Nobel Peace Prize, so he's pretty motivated to get some kind of deal. According to some commentators, for example, Nicholas Kristof at the New York Times, Trump made a huge concession, the suspension of military exercises with South Korea, on top of the the summit meeting itself, unprecedented in the last 75 years, and and the legitimacy the summit gives Kim, Kristoff says that within North Korea, the very special bond that Trump says he formed with Kim will be portrayed this way. Kim forced the American president through his successful nuclear and missile tests to accept North Korea as a nuclear equal, to provide security guarantees to North Korea and to cancel war games with South Korea that the North has protested for decades. In exchange for these confessions, Trump seems to have won astonishingly little, Kristoff argues. In their joint statement, Kim merely reaffirmed the same commitment to denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula that North Korea has made repeatedly since 1992. I wonder if you agree with that reading of the joint statement. No, I I don't uh, agree with it. Uh, The U.S. has refused to talk to North Korean leaders literally since 1945, more specifically since February 1946 when Kim Il-sung came to effective power as the head of an interim people's committee that uh, 
the American occupation commander in the South uh, refused to recognize. And we've refused to deal with North Korea ever since. I don't believe that in any sense Trump accepted Kim as an equal who comes from a nuclear weapons state. I, I'm sure North Korea would like to trumpet that at home if they can. Uh, but the point of this uh, first meeting was to begin a process in which they would no longer be a nuclear weapons state. Uh, as for canceling the military exercises, the U.S. did that back in 1994. Bill Clinton did that as a concession to the North. South Korea is one of the only countries in the world where the U.S. can get away with gigantic military exercises with tens of thousands of troops, both Korean and American. And in that sense, I think the Pentagon probably won't be too happy to not uh, be able to do these games. But it, it's a, a small concession. What I thought was interesting was that uh, Trump said these were provocative games. Yeah. I've, no, no president has ever said that before. But he's right. I mean, he, in his own madness, uh, he sort of brings innocent eyes to the Korean situation. He doesn't know much about it. He doesn't know the history. But if you look at the games, they uh, game out how to decapitate the North Korean regime, for example, uh, how to overthrow it by sending the Marines into the port of Wonsan and uh, marching across the peninsula to take down the government. They also have uh, simulated nuclear drills. Uh, President Obama, during one of these games, sent B-52s to drop dummy nuclear weapons on South Korean islands. Wow. But these are, are very threatening to North Korea. They always have been. But I've never heard of a president who would uh, say they're provocative. The curious thing about this is Trump's utter lack of experience and his lack of any ties to the Washington foreign policy establishment. I mean, people like Nicholas Kristof, who will have a laundry list 89 miles long before North Korea will uh, uh, be recognized. I think, you know, those two things, his basic uh, innocence regarding our long history with North Korea and his lack of ties to uh, the Beltway folks, gives him a, a certain freedom to do something like this. Trump, before the meeting, said, quote, they have to denuke, and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo adds, that it has to be, quote, complete, verifiable, and irreversible, close quote. What does North Korea want in exchange? Well, they want a peace treaty to end the Korean War, which I think is quite doable and something uh, Trump seems to want. I, I think he senses he might get a Nobel Prize out of that. Uh, I don't think that, but he, probably he does. Cessation of the uh, war games, which he's already gotten, and normalization of relations with the U.S., which would probably have to come in the context of a peace treaty because you really can't make a peace treaty with a country uh, that you don't uh, recognize. Uh, and I, I think, fourth, uh, they want a lot of aid. And Trump several times mentioned that the war games were so, so expensive. Well, so is our presence in South Korea with 28,000 troops, 50,000 more in Japan, the 3rd Marine Division in Okinawa, particularly uh, the, the Marines, uh, they're not defending Japan. They're oriented toward uh, fighting if a war were to break out on the Korean Peninsula. And that whole entourage of forces costs tens of billions of dollars a year to uh, maintain. Uh, I saw one estimate that when, when you sort of factor in all the things that we use to deter North Korea or to prepare for fighting North Korea, it might be as high as $40 billion a year. Wow. 
So North Korea is probably looking for something like a billion or two billion a year in aid in return for giving up their nukes and their missiles, which is essentially what they uh, nearly got back in 2000 from uh, Bill Clinton. I imagine that's what they're thinking about. And it's a drop in the bucket. It's a small price to pay to denuclearize North Korea. But I mean, the whole business of denuclearization is, is a misnomer because they want us to withdraw our nuclear forces from the region, uh, B-52s, B-1 bombers from Guam, uh, Trident submarines, uh, all of that has to presumably be reoriented away from the Korean Peninsula. Uh, but we have bombers that can lift off in the Midwest and bomb North Korea, turn around and come home without landing. Mm. So we will never be able to fully satisfy North Korea short of giving up all of our nuclear weapons. I think we've already achieved something that some of the best experts uh, in in the U.S. have called for for years, and that is a moratorium on testing missiles and testing atomic bombs. Uh, And they've done that, in effect, uh, since uh, last November. We haven't talked about South Korea yet, but South Korean President Moon is the one who really took the initiative in getting this whole thing going. What does South Korea want? Well, South Korea wants uh, peace on the Korean Peninsula. It wants to replace the armistice with a, uh, a peace treaty. Uh, it wants to draw down its own immense uh, defense expenditures. It has a 650,000-person army. Uh, but above all, it wants to avoid war. President Moon has said there will be no war on the Korean Peninsula, but the way Trump uh, was talking uh, and Kim Jong-un talking back uh, last fall when Trump threatened to totally destroy North Korea. It was really touch and go uh, right up to December when um, they wanted to appoint Victor Cha as ambassador to South Korea, and Victor quit uh, because he thought Trump was moving in the direction of a preemptive strike, a so-called bloody nose for North Korea. So I think South Korea and the president of South Korea have been very deft at moving things off of a, a, a military alternative and toward a diplomatic path. Is Kim thinking about the Chinese model of a one-party state and a very aggressive uh, economic development? Well, according to South Korean experts that I know, uh, he does want to be the Deng Xiaoping of North Korea uh-huh. in that Deng made these fundamental reforms that were irreversible in 1979, uh, pushing China to join the world economy. And... Uh, really follow Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan in an export-led development model with uh, heavy uh, involvement of the state. And, of course, they've done very well, uh, growing by double digits for most of the last uh, 30 years or more. Uh, And I think that's exactly what uh, the North Koreans are hoping to do. They haven't done it before because they've been uh, so worried about their security And if they open up in a context where you have someone like John Bolton in Washington wanting to overthrow them, uh, which I'm sure he still does, uh, it's just very dangerous. But I think the reason they have kept calling for security guarantees is is so they can feel secure in opening up. And I would think simply because of the size of the countries that probably Vietnam is a better model for North Korea than China, but you, with Vietnam and China, you have two states that have 
grown very rapidly using market principles while uh, having heavy state involvement and ultimate power in the hands of the Communist Party. Uh, so I think that model is very influential in North Korea. Last question. It would be foolish to try to predict what Trump will do. My guess is that he'll probably quit the talks a couple of times, threaten more fire and fury, and then go back to negotiating. Do you have any predictions about what Kim might do? Well, I think Kim is a lot more predictable than Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump is like, uh, I mean, he's like Mercury. He's very uh, mercurial from one day to the next. Uh, no one can control him. Uh, and he hates people who try. Uh, Kim Jong-un uh, came to Singapore with a huge entourage of senior officials, uh, and he's operating out of a collective leadership in the sense that he's listening to his generals and other elders as to what to do. And I think he's likely to maintain the moratorium on testing until things go south, and uh, that would have to be something that the U.S. does, I think, before he would start testing again. Uh, and I, I think he wants an end to the Korean War, uh, which I think is quite doable. Uh, Trump seems to want that as much as anybody else, uh, like I said earlier. It's very hard to chart out um, what's likely to happen. What you just said, I think, is is one of the best uh, uh, scenarios where you have ups and downs, but Trump sort of uh, keeps at it. I just think that a silver lining in having Trump for a president is that he's untethered to anybody, whether his advisors or the Beltway uh, experts or previous administrations and their policies toward North Korea. He's just untethered from all that and in a curious way may be able to make a lot of progress because all those other folks would, would want to go step by step and there would be all kinds of problems and a laundry list of all the things North Korea has to do to please us. And uh, we seem to, to be in a different realm now. So I'm kind of optimistic. I don't think much was accomplished at the summit, but Trump is a person who likes to get to know people, and he seemed to uh, cotton up to uh, uh, Kim Jong-un. So we'll have to see what happens, but I'm fairly optimistic at this point. In Trump's own madness, he brings innocent eyes to North Korea. Bruce Cummings, thank you, Bruce. Thanks very much, John. Now it's time to talk about children in immigration detention. For that, we turn to Ahilan Arulanatham. He's legal director of the ACLU of Southern California. He's also the recipient of a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant. At the ACLU, he has successfully litigated several landmark cases, including the first Ninth Circuit case establishing limits on the government's power to detain immigrants as national security threats. He's also won another case that required the government to provide bond hearings to thousands of immigration detainees in the first case to establish a right to appointed legal representation for any group of immigrants seeking deportation. Ahilan, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Well, there's a wave of public outrage now over Trump's uh, new policy of forcibly separating immigrant children from their parents uh, if they cross the border seeking asylum the ACLU filed a challenge to that practice and won an important ruling last week. Tell us about that case. The Mizal case involves a woman who fled uh, Congo uh, and came to the border uh, to seek asylum. Uh, she did not cross 
uh, illegally in the desert or attempt to do anything like that. She came to the border and presented herself and asked for asylum with her child. Uh, and the government basically said, uh, okay, we'll, we'll process your asylum claim, uh, but while we do that, we will throw you in an immigration detention center, which is a prison by another name, and we will take your child away from you uh, while that um, immigration case is pending. And, and that actually happened before the huge increase in family separations that the Trump administration uh, has uh, started in May. And there's now been really over, I think, over a thousand family separations uh, since May. A number of those involve children younger than four. Uh, it's really just a horrific practice that we're seeing now. And what was the legal basis of the ACLU's challenge? Do uh, asylum seekers have rights? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think it's it's really not in serious dispute that the government couldn't torture asylum seekers. They couldn't shoot them uh, you know, when they come to the border and seek our protection. And our argument is just that the, the family integrity right is is almost, if not equally important, as a basic fundamental right that this country has recognized uh, really uh, throughout its history. And, and it's very clear the conditions under which you can separate a parent from a child. So you have to show that the parent is engaging in abuse or abandonment or neglect. And it's really a very high standard, and for good reason. You know, it's not just that if, if uh, you know, you don't like the way the parents are parenting the child. If that were true, a lot of us um, <laughs> would no longer have our children. Okay. Uh, and, and, and the government here is basically saying, uh, we, we don't want to apply those normal rules, and instead we're just going to separate uh, parents from their children, really because they want to deter people from coming here to apply for asylum. And what happens to the children when they're taken away from their parents? Where do they go? Who takes care of them? They're sent into uh, a federally run foster care system run by the Office of Refugee Resettlement. It sometimes has been a good system, and other times it's had a lot of problems. But I think the most important thing is that's a system designed for children who do not have their parents available. And actually, not just their parents, who don't have a close relative available who can take care of them. So it's just absolutely inappropriate to put a child into foster care when you've got a fit parent who's willing to take care of that child. And how long does ICE hold the children after it takes them away from their parents? Uh, you know, immigration cases can take years sometimes to resolve. And, uh, you know, it's, obviously this policy is, is relatively new, uh, but it's certainly possible that uh, the children could be separated from their parents for extremely long periods of time. And you know, that's, that's horrific for any child. It's particularly brutal and horrible for young children because, you know, a child who's separated from their parents at the age of four for six months, and that's, that's a fundamentally different a child uh, six months later. And the, the basic uh, bonds between parent and child are severed when you have that kind of uh, separation. It's really, it's one of the most gratuitously cruel and horrible immigration policies, you know, in a sea of examples uh, what they're doing now is really, it's really truly awful. The Trump administration argued in court against the ACLU, this was in San Diego, that the Constitution says nothing about the right of immigrant families to stay together. Isn't that literally true? Well, the Constitution says nothing about the right to family integrity, period. The, the word family does not appear in the Constitution. Uh, but Courts have recognized, going back uh, at least in, since the early 1900s, but I think actually arguably even before then, that the right to family integrity is one of the most basic 
constitutional protections. It, it's one of the earliest examples of what's called substantive due process. The idea that there are certain uh, certain rights that are so fundamental that they're um, part of the concept of liberty. And I think part of the concept of liberty is that the government cannot interfere with your family. And that's a principle that's been adopted in cases involving things far less serious than what we have here. You know, when people want to send their children to parochial school in order to preserve the family's uh, linguistic or cultural identity, uh, when people want to live with their extended family, like live with their grandparents or live with their cousins, the Supreme Court in situations like that has said that there's an important right to family integrity such that the government can only intrude on those aspects of liberty if it has very strong reasons for doing so. So the ACLU challenge is, is a due process challenge, which is a constitutional issue. Seems to me it's also a cruel and unusual punishment. Yes, we haven't, we haven't argued that, um, but I think there's no question that what we're seeing is extraordinarily cruel. Uh, the, the government, after initially saying repeatedly in the public that the purpose of this policy was to deter people from coming to the border, they have now tried to back away from that. Because if, in fact, this policy is motivated by a desire to deter, then it is a punishment. And at that point, then, you can't impose a punishment without all the protections afforded to people accused in criminal cases. So now the government has said, no, 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 it's not for deterrence. We're just doing this because people are illegally crossing in the desert, and we want to uh, prosecute everybody who uh, is engaged in, um, in the crime of illegal entry. But the problem with that, uh, claim is that they're doing it to people like Mizell, who did not uh, cross in the desert, but instead just presented herself at the border and applied for asylum. Uh, and then the other problem with what they're saying is that they're doing it to people even after their sentences are over. So people are, are being convicted of illegal entry, which is itself a really horrible thing. People are coming to the desert, turning themselves into border patrol because they want to apply for asylum, and the government has been prosecuting them for illegal entry into the United States. And after that prosecution is over then they're putting them through the asylum process and they're separating the children at that point as well. Well, the Trump administration argues that criminal defendants do not have a right to have their children with them in jail and these people are criminals. What, what does the ACLU say to that? Uh, it is true that people who are sentenced to prison are then separated from their children. Uh, and that's true sort of throughout the criminal process. The, the government has used that as an excuse to justify what's going on here, and um, it really is not a, a valid justification. Um, there's really two critical points to remember about that. And the first is, as I mentioned earlier, they are doing this to a lot of people who are not, have not committed any crime. They're doing it to people who are presenting themselves at the border, like Ms. L. herself. That's not a crime to come to the border and ask for asylum, and yet they're separating parents from children even in that context. Second, they're doing this even to people after they have finished serving a sentence for illegal entry. So when you have people crossing in the desert and then applying for asylum, the government is prosecuting them. They get a sentence of something like 90 days in those situations. After that sentence is over, they're then sent into the asylum system, and the government is still keeping the children from the parents, even after that sentence is done. But the last thing I think is important to recognize about this is it's, it highlights something fundamentally wrong with the way the criminal immigration laws work in this context. And the, even when a person is coming and crossing the border, but then is applying, meaning crossing in the desert, and is then applying for asylum, 
the person still has a right to apply for asylum. They're going through the desert typically because the government is refusing to allow people to come to the border and apply for asylum. There's very, very long wait times. They're requiring people to wait in Mexico for sometimes months uh, without coming uh, to the border to then present themselves and ask for asylum. And so under those circumstances, it, it really shouldn't be criminally prosecuted at all. And it wasn't. For years, when people crossed the border and then sought asylum, the government didn't prosecute them for illegal entry. It's really only now that the government has started to do this under the Trump administration. Just want to spend one more minute on the ACLU's plaintiff in this San Diego case. I was surprised. I think most people would be surprised. This is not a Mexican or Salvadorian mother. This plaintiff comes from Congo. Uh, how did that happen? Yeah, Michelle is Congolese. And uh, although the majority of the asylum seekers uh, coming really since 2014, have been from Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. There are people fleeing persecution all over the world who come to the United States because we have, or we have had in the past, um, strongly protective asylum laws. You know, and that reflects a history of, in this country that really goes back to World War II, because the U.S. Uh, in World War II sadly turned away people who were fleeing Germany uh, many of whom then died in the Holocaust. And in, it was really in recognition of the mistakes that were made at that time and uh, the horrific uh, error that we made in not protecting those people that the U.S. then led the international community to create the Refugee Convention uh, and then later to expand it to cover the entire world. So the U.S. has been a leader traditionally in protecting people fleeing persecution from all around the world. And that's obviously a big reason why people come here, uh, because they're unable to get the comparable protection in many other parts of the world. And it's just really very sad that the administration now seems to be engaged in a massive attack on that fundamental value uh, in our legal system that's been in place since World War II. The ACLU will now be pursuing this constitutional case through the courts, what can ordinary citizens do? Is there a place for citizen action here? Absolutely, because uh, the problems that we're talking about here are beyond any particular lawsuit, even even in a nationwide class action, as we hope um, the Mizell case will be. And the ultimate solutions to the problems that uh, are reflected in these policies really require the more humane uh, treatment of refugees and immigrants, a system that, uh, a system that really would reflect the the American values that we've traditionally uh, upheld in this context. So I would encourage your listeners to engage in activism on family separation. You can, I mean, you can just Google ACLU family separation. You'll see there's a number of take action items. Uh, there's, there's bills now that are being introduced in the Congress that would try and limit the extent to which the government can engage in these kinds of uh, policies. There's, there's a, absolutely a very, very important uh, political role and organizing role to be played in, in stopping this horrific practice. Ahilan Arulanatham, he's legal director of the ACLU of Southern California. Ahilan, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks for having me, John. Next up, 
the November elections for the House and Senate, they're coming into sharper focus after the most recent primaries, especially in California. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. He's executive editor of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Good to be here, John. Well, pundits often say the road to retaking the House starts in California. Hillary carried seven California House districts in 2016 that are currently represented by Republicans and therefore targeted by Democrats. But in the primary elections last week, in six of the seven, the total vote for the Republican candidates was greater than the vote for the Democrats. That seems to be bad news. How bad is it? Well, it's only provisionally bad, partly because we only have provisional numbers. Uh, As anyone who follows California elections has uh, uh, learned uh, over the years, it takes about two to two and a half weeks for a full count of all the votes to come in. Uh, And usually the uh, votes announced on election night and the following morning are somewhere between uh, maybe 60 and 65 percent of the total vote. And the the votes that have yet to be counted are the late uh, absentees and provisional ballots. Now, it was pretty clear who Republicans should vote for, and and to the degree that they voted absentee, as about half the Californians do, there was no ambiguity as to who they should vote for, and so it's likely that those came in early. Democrats were facing the conundrum in these districts of there being a slew of Democratic candidates. And under the rules of the jungle primary, only the top two can advance to uh, the runoff. And it wasn't clear which Democrat would stand the best chance of making it into the runoff. Uh, So I think a disproportionate number of these still uncounted votes are likely to be democratic. And so, uh, A, those numbers should be taken with a grain of salt. B, Republicans always, in California at least, uh, outvote Democrats in primaries, but the percentage of Democrats voting shot up over the analogous primary uh, four years ago in 2014, and the percentage of Republicans voting didn't. So I wouldn't, uh, I, I wouldn't conclude from this that uh, all is lost. Quite quite the contrary. I think of the seven districts you alluded to, the, the way the numbers look coming out of last week's primaries is that there'll be a Democrat in the runoff in each of those seven districts, and that six of those districts are very much in play. Indeed, I think three or four of them, I, I would suspect the Democrats to win. I don't know about the other two. And I would add just one other thing. The the key districts in L.A. and Orange County, which we're following them most closely, the Republican got more than 50 percent in only one district, and that was Irvine, where Mimi Walters is running for re-election. A whole bunch of Democrats ran. The winner was a law professor from UC Irvine, endorsed by Elizabeth Warren and by Emily's List. Her name is Katie Porter. I guess that's one of the districts where you think the Democrats don't have that good a chance. Oh, well, I think it's the most Republican of the uh, uh, the six districts that are still in play. And so I think it's, it's an uphill climb. But I think two of the uh, four Orange County districts, I would expect the Democrats to win, that being the one where Daryl Issa is a representative and he's not seeking re-election. 
and the one where the uh, ever-strange Dana Rohrabacher uh, is the incumbent. By every account, including those in his own party, Putin's pal, and uh, I, <laughs> yes. I think I think he's in uh, in real trouble. So I, I, I think in those two districts, if I had to bet, I'd bet on the Democrat. The Democrats need to pick up. I think right now it's twenty-three seats to take control of the House. If they win three in California or possibly four, where can they get the other twenty? Well, Pennsylvania has been redistricted, and there's a chance that the Democrats, as a sure thing, the Democrats already are going to pick up two in Pennsylvania because there's really no Republican opponent going into November. But uh, in uh, three more districts, I think the Democrats could be favored. So there, there's a, a possible five in Pennsylvania. There's a what I would call a likely three in uh, in New Jersey. There's a likely three in New York. Uh, there are two districts in Illinois, two in Wisconsin, uh, and two in Ohio that are all in play, and then scattered districts around the rest of the country. So I think, you know, I think this is a real possibility. You mentioned Ohio. We had some terrible news from the Supreme Court about Ohio. Would you like to tell us about that? I would like to be able not to, but I, I, I will. <laughs> okay. No, the court on a classic five to four, and I don't even want to say conservative liberal, uh, Republican Democratic or Republican uh, versus American right split, uh, voted to uh, allow Ohio's practice of dropping voters from voter lists if they miss an election. And uh, what this does is it, it penalizes the party that has the greater number of less than constant voters, uh, voters who may skip a local election, voters who may skip an election for a water district or board of education. And that uh, clearly uh, is more damaging to the Democrats than it is to Republicans. I mean, there are lots of Democrats who turn out for presidential elections uh, and gubernatorial elections and lots of Democrats who just turn out for presidential elections and they may find themselves stricken from the rolls. So the Democrats are going to have to do a heck of a job of going through the neighborhoods and re-registering voters. Uh, And it's clearly a decision, like a number of the decisions the Supreme Court has made, that uh, absolutely advantages Republicans, and this is even before we've heard, which we'll hear something by the end of the month, of the court's expected ruling on Janus versus AFSCME, which is really an attempt to take uh, perhaps the Democrats' most major on-the-ground troops, those of the public sector unions, uh, off the playing field by uh, reducing their resources. So the court is playing a very, I won't say conservative, Republican role, and I expect it will continue for the rest of this month, and I expect that will have some effect on this year's elections. But on the other hand, Democrats and those public sector unions have been expecting this, and they have been uh, preparing for the worst, and the court this is a court that tends to produce the worst. We've been talking about the House of Representatives. Of course, that's where the impeachment process starts. But in some ways, the Senate is more important this time around because if the Democrats retook control of the Senate, they would have a chance to block Trump from putting another justice on the Supreme Court if one of the incumbents resigns. To gain control of the Senate, the Democrats have to defend, I think it's 10 seats in states that Trump won 
and win two more. Is that even possible? Yes, it is possible. I think there are three seats in which the Democrats are currently even or favored among the seats they would have to pick up. One in Tennessee, one in Arizona, and one in Nevada. I'm upbeat about actually all three. I think Tennessee and Nevada are looking more of a sure bet than uh, Arizona at the moment, but I think all, all three are doable. The question is, can the Democrats reelect those incumbent senators who are in states that Trump carried? And some of them are facing really uh, tough challenges. Joe Manchin in West Virginia, Claire McCaskill in Missouri. So even if the Democrats win those three, they, they can lose no more than one to gain control of the Senate. And in particular with McCaskill and Manchin and possibly also Joe Donnelly in Indiana, that may prove to be tough. It, it's not impossible. And, you know, Donald Trump has the capacity to turn things over three or four times between now and November. But that, 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 that's going to be tough. Well, the big debate in the Democratic Party is what kind of candidates are more likely to win and where. Do we want middle-of-the-road establishment Democrats to run in districts that are currently red in the hope of winning some moderate Republicans who may be turned off or perhaps even horrified by Donald Trump? Or do we want Bernie-ish challengers to recruit new voters uh, with an appeal based on a infrastructure jobs program, Medicare for all, $15 minimum wage, free college tuition. That would mean a candidate who is not just not Trump, but has a far-reaching alternative program. I think you can guess where uh, we stand on this. What do you right, think? But, you know, but there are some candidates who really don't neatly fall uh, into one category and not the other. If you look at the very notable victory of Connor Lamb in the southwest Pennsylvania district that he carried in a special election last month, you'll find a guy who was uh, pretty conservative on social issues, but on economic issues, he was really out there with a, with a left program, uh, wanting to repeal the tax cut, expand health care. So in a lot of cases, uh, you'll find candidates, uh, I think particularly running, not maybe in the most upscale districts, uh, but in working class districts, who are not where you and I are, but are uh, pretty left on economics. So far, one of the things I've noticed is that the divisions in the party this year, uh, as they play out in the elections, in the primary elections, aren't really quite as divisive as uh, a lot of people thought they would be and as some people wanted them to be. I, I, I haven't found any people saying they're not going to vote in November or Hillary people saying they're not going to vote in November if someone who represents the other wing of the party wins. I don't know really anyone who complained about the victory of Doug Jones in Alabama defeating Roy Moore, even though Doug Jones representing Alabama as he does is clearly on the right fringe of the Democratic Party. Yeah. But uh, I, I think it's pretty clear from, from my perspective that uh, progressive policies uh, on economics really should be playing everywhere. Uh, and, and, you know, the best example of that is the public support given the striking teachers in one red state in some of the most conservative states in America, Oklahoma, West Virginia, one red state after another, you still had uh, conservative parents saying, okay, you know, we're willing to pay higher taxes if, if that means our kids get a better education. 
and and we saw this even without a teacher strike in Kansas a year ago, where moderate Republicans primaried and threw out the right wing Republicans who refused to restore high tax the higher tax rates on the wealthy so that schools uh, you know could actually run for the uh, duration of the entire school year. So I think I, I think there's a lot of running room uh, for progressive economics. And you know, uh, most of the Democrats running are pretty are pretty progressive on on social issues as well. Look, it's also the case that you know the party as a whole has clearly moved to the left, and you'll find so many candidates running in support of, say, single payer health care, yeah. which would have been unthinkable two years ago. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was a niche concern two years ago, not anymore. When we get to November, if the economy is still doing pretty well the way it is now, is that something that Trump is going to be able to run on and defeat Democrats on? Well, uh, Stan Greenberg, the veteran Democratic pollster, has done some polling for a special issue we have coming out of the American Prospect on uh, the Republican tax cut and arguments against the tax cut and so on. One of the things Stan found is that, on the whole, voters do think the economy is getting better at a macro level, but their own economic well-being is not getting better. They understand that, you know, unemployment has fallen and that jobs are being created, but for the last seven, eight years, we've been in a cycle of, of monthly headlines that say unemployment falls, uh, unemployment falls, wages stay the same. You know, that's what Americans are experiencing at the same time that health care costs continue to rise. So I think there's a real limit on how much the macro economy can help ordinary Americans. Uh, there are so many obstacles, including you can't change jobs because of non-compete clauses and many other things. Uh, there are so many obstacles to uh, trickle-down working that Republicans really, I don't think, will get the full benefit that has normally been the case when the incumbent party uh, benefits from low unemployment rates. Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect. Harold, always great to have you on the show. Thank you. Uh, great to be here, John. Finally, the queer history behind a league of their own. The subject of this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast is the hidden story of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League of World War II. Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcasts are sister podcast at The Nation, where sports and politics collide. New episodes every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Come on. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.